When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For the president to say uh, that he's going to withhold funds funds from schools uh, that don't open up is completely upside down. What he should be saying is we're going to pass the HEROES Act, which has $100 billion in order for schools to open up so that they can be safer for children. We talked about reopening the economy, and he said just reopen. There's no reason for any of this stuff. Phases, data, masks, it's all baloney. Yeah, we saw how well that worked. Hospitalizations and deaths, two of the most concerning indicators of Trump's failed response, are already unacceptably high, and they are rising. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. I am recording, as usual, since March from my bedroom, which very much would not pass inspection by that mean room reader guy on Twitter who cruelly judges the rooms where people Zoom their televised appearances to cable news. There's even an unmade bed here, which I believe might be the one truly unpardonable sin. So take that, room raider. I'm glad we're all audio today. Trumpcast has long maintained, with Robert Mueller, who also documented it, that America has been under attack from Russian military since 2015, and that the Trump administration has turned a blind eye and even welcomed those attacks, believing they benefit him. Last week, we talked to Molly McHugh, who broke down the truth of the Russian bounties taken out on the heads of American special forces in Afghanistan, and how the Trump administration knew of those paid to kill American soldiers and did nothing. This extends Trump's history of leaving American military out to dry while he cuddles up to Putin. Do you believe that it was less than a year ago that Trump betrayed our allies, the Ukrainians, by refusing to deliver promised military aid unless they made a Biden attack ad so he could win re-election? Make a Joe Biden attack ad by announcing a, do you remember, a phony investigation into a made-up crime? And then when they said no, Trump left Ukrainian fighters against Russian imperialism, let them twist in the wind, and with them, our own troops. Today, just now, we learned from the NSA that a hacking group associated with Russian intelligence, does this sound familiar? That's like old Guccifer, who attacked the DNC four years ago, that a hacking group is targeting American healthcare organizations to gain intelligence about coronavirus vaccines. Now, that's interesting, not goosing Trump's base with smears on Biden, but rather just cracking into info on the vaccine development. It's kind of old-fashioned, this. It's like the race to the moon. It's not more Hillary Clinton is Satan madness. It's a science race. But it is proof that the Kremlin, which suffered not at all for its hybrid war on the United States starting in 2015, is still at it. With, it seems, Trump's evergreen tacit blessing that the Russians should help themselves to our science, our media, our democracy, and of course, our soldiers, SMDH. Today, my guest is another eminence on the topic of Russia, and especially the Soviet Union, Anne Applebaum. Anne's going to talk about how collaborators and dissidents emerged during a regime like Trump's or East Germany's, as well as how anti-communists like herself moved away from the Republican Party and how people like America's sweetheart Laura Ingraham did not. Instead, they went wild for Trump. Anne's a staff writer at The Atlantic. Her forthcoming book is The Twilight of Democracy. It's out. July 21st, and it belongs in your hands if you want to understand what the hell happened in the U.S. Welcome, Anne. Thank you very much. Delighted to be back again. I was going to say back, but I didn't have the privilege of hosting you that time. That was uh, your old friend and mine, Jacob Weisberg, who started Trumpcast and who credits you with kind of setting us on the right course at the very beginning of the show. You said something like, keep your eye on Russia. 
It was just very, it was very, it was kind of like a uh, follow the money moment <laughs> in the reporting on the, on the story that is Donald Trump. And we're very grateful to you for setting us in the right course. So, well, thank you very much. So you had this idea that, that Russia would be central to our thinking even about Trump, who seemed much more concerned about domestic issues when he ran. Um, And that grew out, I think, of your experience um, after the Cold War with a a conservative clique in Washington, D.C. Lots of boldface names, including people who've been on the show, David Frum, Bill Kristol. And you have a recent excerpt from your book about one Laura Ingraham and what she kind of represents with this group and how the story of this group's evolution and the evolution even of our democracy and of the Republican Party can kind of be told through this, I was going to call her an ingenue, but she's the opposite of an ingenue, I think. So just talk us through this because I find I do find this really interesting and she's obviously a compelling, if increasingly repellent personality. Actually, Laura Ingraham's story is one of several, which are about what happened to the coalition of conservatives who fought the Cold War in the name of liberal democracy and anti-communism and sometimes free markets, and what happened to that group of people over the subsequent um, 20 and 30 years. And the reason I'm writing about them is partly because they're interesting and partly because I knew a lot of them, um, because I would have called myself a conservative in 1989, and I was certainly an anti-communist, and I was actually in Poland at the time that communism fell, um, and a lot of the people I knew at that time were part of the, you know, generally speaking, the anti-communist movement. And in really, if you, if you kind of go around Europe and you look across the United States, you see that the um, conservatives, as it was then, has now in many places, and the story is a little different in each country, and I try not to overgeneralize, but um, in many places, movements have split, um, and they've divided into different groups, and that has absolutely happened inside the American Republican Party as well. Hmm. Um, in other words, there are, there are people who inside the Republican Party who would still describe themselves as committed to a kind of an idea or an ideal of liberal democracy, who um, who believe in um, the separation of powers, um, uh, you know, who believe in um, maintaining, you know, in, in maintaining a kind of shared public space where there are some neutral institutions of the state, whether it's, you know, I don't know, the FBI or the CIA or American foreign policy that should be bipartisan and should be supported by both sides, um, and, and, and believe that there is something like a neutral public sphere within which we can argue, but that we all agree about the ground rules of the game. And then there is another group of conservatives or people who are not really conservative anymore, I would say they're now radical, um, who increasingly don't believe in those things um, and who believe rather that, um, that um, you know, p- politics is about, is a, you know, is a question of who are the patriots and who are the enemies of democracy, you know, enemies of America, rather, I would say, mm-hmm. and who are, who is the right party to be in and who is on the other side and who should be included and excluded from politics. And by the way, I should say, you know, there is such a movement on the left as well. Um, and there always has been. I mean, my previous books are all about kind of left-wing ex- extremism in its most um, radical form, which is their books about Soviet communism. But this book is not about them. This is about this. This is about the right. So you know, just stick to that for now. And they are, you know, led by Trump. They have profited off the polarization of America. And let's think about what polarization means. It means that mm-hmm. people no longer, you know, as as the you know kind of political tribes become farther apart people no longer see their opponents as rough equivalents. Um, They aren't Mm -hmm. people you can do deals with. They aren't people with whom we are jointly sharing this, you know, this, this political system. They're enemies who have to be defeated and excluded from politics. And once you have those kinds of feelings in politics, then democracy becomes harder to maintain. And I I use Laura Ingraham not because I know her particularly well, I, I know her very slightly, but because she's someone who graduated from being a kind of Reaganite conservative, you know, part of this believer in America's role in the world and so on, to being someone who who believes very different things now. You know, it's weird because Russia shifted as some of these 
uh, conservatives shifted. And there are some people, and I th- I'm thinking of maybe from and Crystal and you, who continue, you know, you say there this was an anti-communist movement, but who continued to object to the Kremlin, even as Russia turned from a communist state to a mafia run state. And it always, it does interest me that the anti-communism ideals turned later into a kind of anti-oligarch idea. Was that a shift or was that sort of an extension of the first set of ideologies? You know, I explained this in some, you know, nuance and so on in the book that what we called, you know, anti-communists, in fact, was different groups of people. And so some people were anti-communist because of, you know, raison d'etat and fear of Russian influence and the need mm-hmm. to compete with Russia. And this included many Democrats, for example. I mean, it's a, and because of, you know, because of concern about nuclear weapons. Some people were anti-communist because they were believed in human rights and democracy and they mm-hmm. and they felt that, you know, the oppression of large parts of the world was a bad thing. And some people were anti-communist because communism was atheist um, and they were Christians and they believed that, you know, this this anti-Christian force had to be destroyed. And one yeah. of the things that happened in the in the 1990s and afterwards is those coalitions in, in every country began to break up and people began to go take their, go their different ways. And there is a part of what used to be the sort of Reaganite right, and it's in particular the, you know, Pat Buchanan is the kind of spokesman for it, mm-hmm. who increasingly believed that, you know, okay, Russia may be a, an authoritarian state, it may be a mafia state, it may be a state that's using its money to try and affect our democracy, which mm-hmm. um, is un- unquestionably the case, um, but Russia is a Christian power. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a Christian mm-hmm. state. I mean, and by the way, that's that's a myth. I mean, Russia is not a Christian state. It's some unbelievably small number of Russians have ever read a Bible. Sorry, I don't have the statistics <laughs> but right Putin here. But Putin does a nice performance of Something like 5 or 6%. It's also a state, by the way, with a very large Muslim population, mm. one very high. And it even has a, there's a province of Russia, Chechnya, where Sharia law holds. So it's mm-hmm. a it's hardly a, a, a you know a model Christian state, but Putin does do the leader of Russia does do this performance of being Christian. He goes to church, he wears a cross around his neck and so on. And that's partly because he's signaling to people like Pat Buchanan that he's on their side. And so there is a part of the right that now says, right, this is um it's a Christian power, it's a white power, you know, in a world where there are all these brown, Muslim, you know, non-Christian states whom we should be aligned against, um, mm-hmm. and therefore we should be on their side. Um, and so the, you know, whereas the people who were anti-communists because they believed in, you know, you know, whether it was American power or whether they believed in, you know, human rights and democracy, see Russia as an ongoing threat. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. Russia remains a threat to democracy. Um, our democracy, to European democracies, Russia is a country that spends money promoting extremist movements, actually of both the far right and the far left, but more successfully on the far right mm-hmm. in every country in Europe that uses very sophisticated disinformation campaigns, including in our country, to promote, again, to promote the far right and to promote movements that are anti-NATO, anti-Western alliance, mm-hmm. anti-European Union. Um, and so some people continue to see that as a threat. Others, as I say, have who have begun to look for different kind of allies in the world um, now see Russia as an ally. I mean, to be clear, um, and to go back to your original, you know, the original point about Donald Trump, I mean, I don't think Donald Trump was interested in Russia for that reason. I think Russia, you know, Donald Trump has been affiliated with corrupt Russian business interests for, you know, three decades now in different parts of the world and has been interested in making money out of Russia. I don't think he's interested in Christianity one way or the other. And he's also somebody who was never part of any kind of political coalition in the past mm-hmm. of any so he's, you know, his interest, his attachment to his relationship with Russia, I think, is financial. But there are people in the Republican Party who have are coming to believe that, you know, if the world is now divided between the white nations and the colored nations, then we should be on the side of Russia, which is a large white nation. Although it's not mm-hmm. as white as they think they is, but that's a, that, sorry, that's a sort of crude explanation. But yeah. That's a, a short- 
So with the Christian crowd, the, so the Buchanans, the Russophiles among the, among the Christians, where did they sit in relation to the Birchers, who were, were sort of more, and some of this language, the radical socialist part of the American, you know, part of America, no longer aligned with Russia, but also up to something nefarious. The Birchers had, were anti-Semitic, obviously, and then also just the thoroughgoing terror around communism. I don't even know what that word was a proxy for, for the far right that seems to have, seems to inflect at least the way that the Laura Ingrahams of the world still talk, um, and the Alex Joneses, the, the, the conspiracies based on Jewish global elite, in banks, in league with communists. You know, sometimes it's not even worth teasing this stuff out, but where did they sit? when there was a germ of this kind of far-right radical thinking in the early days of anti-communist, anti-Soviet conservatism that you describe in this piece on Laura Ingram. So I didn't go into this in great extent in my own book because it's been very well written about um, elsewhere. But famously, it was William F. Buckley who drove this kind of far-right extreme, you know, anti-Semitic actually groups out of the Republican Party mm-hmm. in the sort of 60s, 70s, 80s. And it was the, you know, there was a very deliberate, actually, effort to expel them, to marginalize them, and to make the party what it became in the Reagan years, you know, a kind mm-hmm. of party that sought to appeal to all Americans, that tried to craft a message, actually, that would, you know, that would cross social classes and even, you know, at some points, you know, even across racial lines. And it mm-hmm. sought to create a sort of universal message. You can argue about whether that was successful or not, or whether that was what it was really doing. But certainly there was some effort put to do that. And there was also a lot of effort made to squeeze the extremists out of the party. Mm-hmm. You know, what's happened in the last few years is that, you know, this has happened across politics and almost almost all over the world, is that partly because of the nature of political information and the way we now all get and read about politics, the extremists have been allowed back in, and in some cases, it have been allowed to dominate political conversation in a way that they, they didn't before. Um, it's partly because the way information now moves around and the way that political argument happens. I mean, if you, you know, if you look at how social, what kinds of conversations are favored by social media, um, you know, I mean, the Facebook algorithm and the YouTube algorithm will literally push you to find more and more extreme information if you mm-hmm. keep clicking on things that you like. You know, if you if you start out by telling them that you're in, that you like animals, you know, you'll get sent to animal rights pages and you can even get sent into the furthest extremes of, you know, animal rights terrorism. You know, if you if you stay on and you keep clicking and you can do it in in, in very short periods of time. Yeah. Um, and so so all of our politics have grown more extreme. Um, but in the but in the Republican Party, I mean, it's definitely the case that this piece of the party that's, you know, that was seen as extremist and far out is now moved slowly um, back into the center of politics. It is hard to imagine William Buckley, who who used television so well, being a YouTuber, Instagram influencer in the same way. You need you need a long line to be Buckley, you know, and you need some breaths and uh, and to create those kind of arguments. And it doesn't work as well in in uh, sound bites. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. David Frum on this show said, I think well before the pandemic, that that far right, the Birchers and and their ilk had been well quarantined by the party. It is amazing. And I think younger listeners may not know that you, you know you and I are around the same age. I was around Dartmouth College as a as a townie, as a kid. Laura Ingraham was a student there. And the feeling that the sort of soggy 70s were over and we that that our parents who'd been so anti-nukes so at least mine and um and so worried about the cold war that saw some saw a kind of figure of fear in Ronald Reagan that they were as young people that they were wrong 
you know, and that they would, you know, we'd never have to go back to the Carter malaise because for once in the late 80s and 90s, it felt like America was not only on the right side of history, but just was history that, you know, the things that made us happiest Levi's were signals, symbols of freedom and that, and, and that ideologically, economically, uh, culturally, we were just, it was all going to be, you know, a bed of roses. We were in clover from there on. Um, and that was this kind of amazing optimism, how that curdled into the dystopian vision that you hear articulated by, by say, Laura Ingraham now, but certainly Donald Trump is just, it, it, I, I, you know, of all the things I did and didn't get during Trump's campaign, I did not expect him to give the, the most anti-Reagan inaugural address you could ever imagine. The, like, uh, talking about carnage. Um, and it, I just, I hadn't apprehended America as, you know, filled with with ghouls and rampaging rapists and whatever else he saw. Um, it looked pretty America to me still in 2016. And it was as though he brought the carnage into being. But how did did a party that ran on optimism, that ran on this enthusiasm and still had enjoyed the fumes of what people had loved about it in the 80s, decide that the way to go was this kind of death drive, ghoulish vision of America that, by the way, Laura Ingraham still holds on to even after four years of her beloved president? Things are still bad. It's important to say it's like it's ne it's never morning in America. It is the dark. It's suicide hour, 4 a.m. in America all the time. <laughs> How did that happen? So I, I think it's um, again, the, the book goes, you know, there's a there's a there's a long preface before I get to Lauren Grimm, which talks about this phenomenon that was originally written about by a German historian who was writing about the 19th century, yeah. which is the phenomenon of cultural despair ah. at moments of great speed um, when when change is happening very quickly technological change cultural change economic change you know people begin to feel that things have been lost mm. this deep mm -hmm. pessimism about the state of the culture mm -hmm. is not new um, it's something you can you know you can see in other countries at other times and it very often has to do with the sense that something is lost some kind of traditional lifestyle mm -hmm. some kind of imagined way of being that was calmer and nicer and better um, sometimes it's some moment when we still had real heroes and great men and not the mediocrities like the people who run our country today. Um, and when, uh, you know, sometimes it's a, almost a longing for the kind of, it takes the form of this nostalgia we have still in this country, in the United States, for, um, you know, the greatest generation, you know, people who fought real battles and not the petty conflicts of the moment. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it takes the form of despair about the present. Sometimes it's a kind of, you know, restorative nostalgia, a belief in the past and that we can bring back elements of the past that we've lost. Yeah. Um, and that's a phenomenon that you can see repeated over time. And I think she is um, an example of that. I mean, she's she's somebody who sees has come to see that her side or believes that her side or her arguments in, in politics are they're losing, that they are, uh, you know, she remember that she's a, she's a Christian convert. Mm -hmm. um, and so she's, she's somebody who thinks that her religious vision is disappearing. Her kinds of people are being pushed out of, out of, um, you know, out of, out of prominence, losing status. I mean, in a way it's an odd argument because I mean, if I sort of think of, of all, again, she's, she's not a friend of mine and I, I haven't seen her in many in, in years, but if you think of, you know, I think about all the people I know, I mean, she's probably one of the wealthiest and most successful just in terms of material culture, but she, she, I think thinks of herself as somebody who is, doesn't get the respect that she deserves. She's been pushed aside and um, not recognized in the way that, that she should have been. And this, this sense of resentment that our kinds of people aren't at the center where they should be, I think is part of the explanation. And she converted to Roman Catholicism, right? Like from what she was, she'd been some kind of Protestant, a Baptist. Yes. And this conversion to Catholicism, to, to very conservative Catholicism, and I even think the Southern Poverty Law Center now designates something, they have a crazy name for it, something like 
radical traditional Roman Catholicism as a cult and as dangerous terrorist group. And this is sort of the the place that Bill Barr, also the son of a a convert from Judaism, also seems to inhabit. It's a very, um, well, I don't know, it seems a very un-American place from which to view America. I don't want to use the word terrorist cult. And, you know, I I know um, many Catholics and I even know people who've converted to Catholicism. And so, yeah. you know, you have to be very careful what you're what you're saying. You know, there, yeah, I mean, there are many I, people who's, you know, who, who are religious for all kinds of reasons. And I, I don't think religion necessarily makes you anti-democratic. No, absolutely. I, I, I myself am like I'm fairly religious, but I also just it just seemed interesting to me that the, the Southern Poverty Law Center, which sometimes exaggerates these things, has yes. taken a very fringe, I think they're beyond Opus Dei, and especially beyond Opus Dei in tactics, has singled this this group out. But yes, of course, and I wouldn't say Ingraham or Barr is aligned with that, but it's just, it's strange part of the path from uh, Reaganite, um, you know, Protestant optimism to this kind of curdled Catholicism that seems as seems as you you say in the book aligned with this this very dark vision of America. Well, so the look, world. these are people. These are people who feel now like a minority. I mean, some of them say it. You mm. know, you can they. You know, the culture has become very secular. Mm-hmm. Their concerns have been pushed aside. Their beliefs have been marginalized. Uh, mm-hmm. That's how they. That's how they would see it. Their issues are are not mainstream, mm. and there's an ongoing argument both on the I would say in among evangelical Christians and among some Catholics. Catholics are a pretty wide range of people. Yes, uh, but among some some Catholics, um, about you know how can we take back you know how can we get our central position back? How do we make mm-hmm. our arguments? Um, and for a long time, you know, most, you know, the argument was, well, we live in a, you know, a big society and, you know, we can play our, our role and we'll try and carve out a space for ourselves. And then increasingly, some of them feel, I mean, there was a famous article by a Wall Street Journal columnist, Sarah Bakhmari, a few, a year or so ago, mm-hmm. arguing that instead of playing that minority role, we need to reestablish, our, you know, we need to take back the institutions, you know, we need mm-hmm. to make them religious again, you know, we need mm-hmm. to, re, you know, even if we're a minority, we need to reassert our views onto the majority and force them to go along. So there is a, there is a kind of disagreement among sort of political Christians about what the best tactics are. Mm-hmm. Um, but there mm-hmm. are certainly some who, who now think it is my obligation to make sure that Christianity is a is a deep part of American foreign policy or a deep part of American domestic policy, and it's written. I mean, you, you can see, that, you know, a classic example of this is Mike Pompeo, who is currently has subjected U.S. human rights policy to a kind of commission, which is now re-examining it mm-hmm. to see whether it's really in line with Christian beliefs. It's all very odd, but these are, you know, again, these are people I think who are. I mean, if you can step, you know, who feel them, their beliefs to be marginalized and they worry about losing um, yeah. some kind of big cultural argument. It's just, you know, growing up when we did, the great Roman Catholic in American politics was John Kennedy. I know Bannon has said he he supported Kennedy. Pence has said he supported Kennedy. Uh, Pence converted from Catholicism is now a Protestant. Bannon has moved to the very far right of the of the Roman Catholic Church. And now we have Joe Biden, you know, my lefty uh, Roman Catholic father is so excited we might have our second Catholic president, and yet Joe <laughs> Biden is anathema to to the Laura Ingrahams of the world. It's just um, you know a lot of these things have just uh, it, the mind spins when you try to sort out how this happened. And I credit to you for trying um, and for succeeding so well with this book. I don't know if you've seen Laura Ang- Ingraham's brother on Twitter, but I have. he's. Okay, so he's a little bit like like the Mary Turner of the of the affair, with maybe slightly less astute, but he kind of says what Mary Trump says about her uncle that there's so much uh, trauma and darkness in the family that this that that in the Ingraham case that Laura has essentially gone insane, that she's that she's very dangerous, and Mary Trump says exactly the same thing 
about her uncle. And I wonder, and this is the thing that you've heard, we've heard about, um, you know, documentaries about people whose fathers lost it to Fox News or brainwashed. Or you think, what happened to Rudolph Giuliani? Or what happened to even Dinesh D'Souza, who, you know, was... I don't know if you remember this, but he was nicknamed Distort Denusa when he was at when he was at uh, at Dartmouth by the left. But he wasn't seen as just awful ledge in the same way. And the other Dartmouth Review people have walked this back. But then there's some, like the one Tucker Carlson recently fired, who use the N-word, who are are just brutal, vicious personalities. And really, the proposal that there's some kind of almost mental illness here or sort of mass delusion and madness among this far-right group that shows up in whenever we try to parse their beliefs— they sound almost like they're talking about the Illuminati and lizard people. And I wonder if it feels like, because you knew some of these people, if it feels <laughs> like they just, their brains just slipped or something there, or they, they were seized almost by some kind of political fervor, some kind of emotional, I don't know what, madness, I guess. It, it, I mean, is that sort of your felt experience of knowing some of these people that kind of seem to have lost it? I don't think they're mad, actually. I don't okay. think they're, I, I, you know, I mean, Laura, by the way, I don't know anything about Laura's family, you know, or her, yeah. you know, her, her deep inner life. I don't speculate about it. I, you know, I have no idea whether what her brother says is true or not. Yeah. But I, I don't think it's, it's insanity. I mean, I think that's a sort of unfair way to talk about it. I mean, I, um, I, I still think it's, it's a, it's more like a form of groupthink. Um, and as I said, a belief that, we are on the edge of destruction, that mm -hmm. our culture is threatened, that the things that we believe in are being taken away from us, that our children will not um, be able to live the same kinds of lives that we had, that our values are being undermined, um, that the, you know, what they would call the left has taken over the culture, it's taken over education, it's taken over um, universities, or you know, you know, and and we are being excluded, mm -hmm. and so this is a kind of extreme reaction to that to, to to that feeling. I mean, that that's more how I would describe it. I would also say that there is a, you know, there's an element of performance in some of this as well. Yes, you know, yes. remember some these are people. So you know, these are people who are trying to reach other people. So they are signaling to large, you mm -hmm. know, whether it's for, through Fox News or through running political campaigns. And so they are seeking to send simple messages out, you know, to Americans who also feel excluded or somehow left out from the mainstream culture and trying to create a kind of tribal identity or sentiment around them and around themselves, you know, and that, that makes for a kind of flat conversation. If you're sending signals rather than doing nuance, you know, and, yeah. and political debate. And propaganda, just right. being treated to conversations that are almost cheating out to cameras. I've been watching a lot of these so-called Karen videos and the willingness of, of people to sort of radically dramatize their dysphoria um, around masks or around Democrats is, yeah, makes public space somewhat, somewhat tedious. It, it almost feels like when you watch a lot of these videos that somewhere in the corner there's somebody shrieking into a cell, a, a cell phone saying pretty much always the same things, that their rights are being infringed on and that Dr. Fauci is actually a serpent or whatever. And you're right that, that there's a theatricality to it and there are some talking points that almost seem compulsive. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is the difference between social media and traditional media, you know, is that social media is performative in that way, you know, mm -hmm. everybody's contributing and showing who they are and not rather than reporting the story. Yeah. I want to move into, because the sort of madness and sanity access, understandably, is not something, you know, that you think is the is useful for describing what happened to the anti-communists that you knew. Move to your your cover story in The Atlantic that I think, even though I got to it a bit late, I, I like heavily praised this on Twitter because it's just like a mini masterpiece that has helped me understand so well what till that point had become it was just impenetrable to me. The idea of how a Bill Barr figure, say, could go from a seemingly, you know, man of the law to 
someone, you know, gunning for the pardon of Roger Stone. It's just very strange. But so what you do in this piece is talk about complicity and dissent. And I wanted to read that dissenters, maybe like ourselves or anti-Trump types, never Trumpers, are very courageous and that complicit people are are very lazy and self-serving. But that's not what you can't, that, that flattering account of, you know, Democrats and liberals is not actually what you came away with here. It's a very subtle story that you tell of these two East Germans and then you get to an analysis of some of the stranger creatures of our time, like Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham. So do you mind walking us through this? I just want to right. savor the argument again. <laughs> so, so yes. So this was, this was also, this is not in my book. This is a, this is a separate project. So this was, this was the cover story in the Atlantic um, in July and August. And this was a piece in which I tried to tease apart what we mean by collaboration and complicity and what compels people to become collaborators. And I spent a long time thinking about it and finally wound up starting the piece with um, what is actually, it's actually, if you know the history of East Germany, which I accept most of your listeners don't have to know, it's not important, <laughs> um, but if you, is, is a fairly famous story, which is the story of two East Germans who had almost identical backgrounds. They were both German. They were both children of communists. They both grew up in Moscow. During the war, they were both sent to kind of training camps in Siberia to prepare them to go back into Germany after the war. They both went back into Germany after the war, and they arrived to, re to create the East German communist regime, as it then was in 1945. Three years later, one of them, who's called Wolfgang Leonard, suddenly uh, made the decision to escape the country. And this was at a time a very dangerous thing to do because he was by then already, although he was, they were both very young, they were in their 20s. Mm -hmm. um, but he, he was then a high-ranking communist because he simply felt that the hypocrisy of the regime, the things that it had promised were turning out to be lies, that it wasn't, you know, offer, it said it was about justice and really it was about repression and it said it was about prosperity and really it was about control and impoverishment. And so he, feeling that his ideals had been undermined, he fled the country. The other one of them, who was, again, had this identical background, they, were, they knew one another very well, who was called Marcus Wolf, made exactly the opposite decision. He decided to stay in East Germany. And not only did he stay, he kind of, you know, climbed up the rungs of, of, of the Communist Party, and he eventually wound up as the head of the East German uh, Foreign Secret Service. So he was a kind yeah. of spy boss, and he was the guy who recruited spies in NATO and in West Berlin and you know, he was famously known as the man without a face. He was a figure of great interest to Western spy, you know, spy agents. So he, was, he wound up at the very, very top of the police state. Hmm. Um, and so the question is, why? You know, what was it that compelled one of them to run away and one of them to stay? And yeah. what were the factors? And again, I, I, you know, probably annoyingly, I, I don't give you one answer. Instead, I go back through and look at all of the many reasons why it is that people choose to collaborate. Yeah. Um, and from some very well-meaning reasons often. And I go through this and I look at some historical examples and I also look at some examples in the modern Republican Party. The analogy, I should say, is that Trump offered things in his campaign. You know, he, he, he talked like a populist, almost kind of like a kind of Latin American populist, you know, I'm going to do good for the working man. And, you know, he, he made an offer that was maybe contradictory to traditional Republican ideology, but wouldn't necessarily have had to be, you know, un-American or unpatriotic. Right? You know, it, it, was yeah. a, it was a political offer. After a couple of years in Washington, it became pretty clear that that's not what Trump was. Trump was not interested in the working man. You know, his tax cuts benefited rich people. You know, his, um, his administration was set, you know, the people whom he hired were often um, lobbyists, you know, in the very industries that they were now going to regulate. Um, what he was running was a kind of, you know, was a, was a profoundly corrupt, um, almost Putin-like, you know, kleptocracy. Um, he mm -hmm. was seeking to use the instruments of American foreign policy for his own personal benefit. You know, mm -hmm. all these, all these sort of things began to climb. And as that became clear, a lot of Republicans came to understand that that's what it was. And so mm -hmm. then the question is, how do they react? And how did, you know, how did people behave? You know, would they, like Wolfgang Leonard, throw up their hands and say, I can't take this anymore. I have to leave. 
or do they stay and collaborate and try and benefit? And the question is, you know, as I say, why do people make these decisions? And I went through the many different kinds of reasons that people give, and including reasons that people who who work for the Trump administration have given, and some that we've heard publicly. So some people say, well, I'm, I'm trying to do good. There are good things that I can do while I'm here. Famously, there was the anonymous writer in the New York Times who wrote, mm-hmm. if you remember that a couple of years ago, who wrote the big piece saying, I know Trump is corrupt. Mm-hmm. I know he's incompetent. You know, I'm staying in my job, though, in order to protect the country. So there were people mm-hmm. who believed that that's what they were doing. I mean, that was the kind of Jim Mattis argument. You know, I'm yeah. there to... And then, you know, as you go through, and then there are, there are other less attractive reasons. Um, there are some people who are there for the money. Mm-hmm. There are some people who are there because they, they find the idea of being close to power so profoundly appealing and important. Yeah, you say something, you use a word that, it's something like influence. Oh, e- efficacy or something like effectiveness. Effectiveness. It's sort of a, a heady feeling that you can, you know, get things you done. Can, you're effective. Yeah. You're important. You're a bureaucrat who matters, you know. And so yeah. if you... If you can stay in to fight another day, you can continue to be effective. This is actually something I took from a memoir, somebody who wrote about the Vietnam era. Why didn't people knew the Vietnam was going badly? Why didn't they protest? And this mm-hmm. was why, because you don't want to you know, be too critical because then you'll lose your job and you'll lose your effectiveness. Yeah. I mean, Laura Ingraham is talking to Trump uh, like regularly. I, you know, I've never talked to an American president even once. So there <laughs> must be something heady in that. And then the money... Some people, it's money. Some people, it's money. Yeah. I think Anthony Scaramucci, who we had on the show, said, you know, I'm a kid from Long Island. I think he said his father was a crane operator. And, you know, I thought I'd never get out of that. And now I had both influence and money. And then he broke ranks, obviously. But, but then, you know, then there are these deeper reasons that get back to some of the things we started the conversation with. You know, there yeah. are there are people who, and this this is where I made the comparison, which bothered some people, but you know, and we can argue about whether it's fair or not, to, to, to the collaborators in Vichy, France, mm-hmm. um, many of whom were motivated by, you know, why were this, these are the French, often, often very patriotic French people, you know, generals and others who collaborated with the Nazis during the mm-hmm. occupation of France. Mm-hmm. And for many of them, the reason was that they felt that the Nazis were a lesser problem than the mm-hmm. real enemy. And the real enemy was socialism and mm. French socialists and the the sort of sli- the chaotic French governments of the 1930s and the Jews, you know, France had had a Jewish prime minister in that area. And, you know, that the Nazis would help return France to the traditional um, society that it had been, you know, that would help, you know, rebuild the hierarchies of the past, you know, bring back the traditional role of the family, the patriarchy, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and that, that, w- that it was very, very important that, and you could even collaborate with the devil. And these weren't all people who, who liked the Germans, but will collaborate with them in order to save France. And mm-hmm. there is an element of that too, um, in the Trump administration, you know, there, there are, and we're talking now about, I'm talking about the, you know, the Senate, high levels in the Senate and very, mm-hmm. and cabinet level Trump people, you know, mm-hmm. who, who people who are there because the nation is in such grave danger from the left and from the forces of secularism that, you know, we have to side with Trump, even though we know he's incompetent and even though we know he's a kleptocrat and even though we know, you know, he's abusing power, we have to side with him in order to make sure that we defeat the left. And that, Mm -hmm. you know, that is an important motivation for people. That really does sound like bar, right? That it, and it's a, a sort of by any means necessary style thinking that uh, it sounds both like bar even the the idea that the forces of secularism are very dangerous but also like the evangelical leaders who who see Trump as King Cyrus, you know, a pagan who led the way for the freedom of the of the Jews um, in that case, but of the proto-Christians, I think. As right, or, or, or King David, you know, King David yes. was a sinner and yet he was the great king of Israel. You know what I mean? So they can find, you can find um, biblical yes. precedents to explain him and, and put him in that, in a kind of evangelical context. Sadly, you're not going to then tell me that, well, and then there are dissenters who are heroes, but it rather, I love, I mean, I just, you know, couldn't get enough of this idea that, Wolf, Wolfgang Leonard saying um, it, that his his transition from loyalty to the to the uh, communist party in East Germany happened at this kind of moment where 
it just a just a, a, a kind of banal moment and you see people making this decision with Trump that's what it took you know one time that's what it took for you to divide be divided from Trump i never expected that he would well stand up at helsinki is a big one with putin but that's that's even bigger than some of the ones i've heard from of trumpites breaking with the president just some little moment that said you know he, well he wouldn't wear a mask or i saw my father watching fox news and he just became so abhorrent that i realized the whole party was in trouble i mean just these little things but anyway i love leonards because you kind <laughs> of are you kind of think when you you know, decide that he has, and we see when you're taught by the article that he's had all this loyalty to the to the communists that he is probably pretty immune to these little outrages. But then he's outraged to discover something that you know I think the rest of us would now, in retrospect, see as very obvious. So tell the story. I mean, to be fair to Wolfgang Landart, a lot of things had happened to him that probably led him to his decision, including his mother being arrested Mm -hmm. in the Soviet Union before the war. She was in the Gulag, famously. And his mother was arrested and he'd seen all kinds, he talks about this in his memoir, all kinds of moments of unfairness and injustice and so on. But the turning point for him was he was in the party headquarters in Berlin and and a Somebody came up to him and said, comrade, you know, I've just arrived from the West and I'm a party member and, you know, I'd like to get lunch. You know, where do, where is the dining hall here in the East German Communist Party headquarters? And Leonard explains to him that there are three dining halls, you know, depending on what your rank is, you go to a different dining hall. And the, and the Western communist is stunned by this. He said, but, you know, but aren't we all communists? Aren't we all equal? How can we how can we have different dining halls for party members? And then Leonard, you know, thinking about this, walks into his own dining hall and because he's at the very top of the system. It's got you know, white tablecloths and three-course meals and so on. And suddenly he realized, wait, this is not what I believe in. I, you know, I, you know, I joined the party because it's about equality and it's about you know the party being the servant of the people and not hmm. being. A, you know, um, and not being about personal privilege. And this is anyway, this is how he recounts it in his autobiography. And of course, you know. By definition, anybody who writes an autobiography is an unreliable narrator. So, mm-hmm. yeah. but this is the moment that he picks to tell us um, that he changes that he changes his mind. But the yeah. reason why the reason why people break from things is sometimes trivial, or sometimes it's the moment when you suddenly sense the wind blowing the other way. Yeah. You know, or it's the moment when you suddenly see that the cause you've been fighting for can't be defended anymore. You know, so so yes. there. Are, there, you know, and I give a number of also in that article, I give a number of you know examples of of how it is that people become dissidents. And then there are some people who are sort of born into it. I mean, in East Germany, um, there were people who came from anti-communist families. Who, uh, you know, I have a friend who's um, he's described in the piece too, called Marco Martin. He's an East German writer um, whose family kind of belonged to the anarchist, anti-communist left back in the 1920s or, you know, his grandfather, um, 1930s. And so he had this kind of gene in his family or this tradition of not liking organized authority. And so from a very young age, you know, when he was in school, he defined himself as a dissident, you know, and he eventually actually was allowed to leave the country in May 1989, so a few months before the wall fell. Mm-hmm. But so there are different sources of dissidents. It can come from your family, it can come from your education, or or it can come from these trivial realizations, these moments when you suddenly see that you've been supporting something that you don't believe in. I love this point that sometimes, um, I think you get this from Marianne Berthler, but she says that sometimes you become a dissident through these kind of small decisions. Like you, yes. you don't, I like this thing of, you know, you sit out the May Day parade one year for whatever reason. It's just not, you know, you don't really want to do that. Um, or maybe you sit out the one in Chernobyl because it doesn't look like the, uh, it doesn't look like the Chernobyl disaster is under control. You don't believe the party. So what, you know, maybe you're not going to go out into this radioactive atmosphere, but one reason or another, like the people maybe in Oklahoma who decided not to go to the Trump rally, not because they had really turned on Trump, but because they just didn't think it was worth the risk of going to a maskless rally. And from there, you say you might choose not to sing the words of the party hymn. You know, you might just say, not today. I'm not going to shout, lock her up today. And then slowly you find yourself voting for Biden. (laughs) I just, I think this is, I think this is so interesting because that is many of my Republican friends in 2015 
and 2016. I know for you, the moment came with Palin. So I want to hear about how you kind of changed your mind or recognized that this was not a party you wanted to follow. Right. Well, to be clear, you know, I was never, I don't think I was, in fact, I know I was never, I've never been a registered Republican nor Mm. a registered Democrat, you know, and I did vote Republican, you know, in some elections. So I wasn't a party activist in that way. And I wasn't that closely identified with it. But there were a couple of things that were big breaking points for me. One of them was actually, if you can remember back that far, Abu Ghraib, Oh, yeah. which was the use of torture in Iraq. I mean, for me, mm-hmm. you know, I'd, I've written books about the gulag and the way Soviet interrogations worked and the idea that um, the U.S. is using those kinds of tactics was sort of too much for me. And, you know, and I, you know, wrote a column at the time saying I thought Rumsfeld should resign on those grounds. And some people thought I was, that was such an odd, you know, why, you know, that's, you know, he's the defense, you know, secretary of defense. This is mm-hmm. a trivial thing. But I, I, for me, that was a really important moment, an important turning point. Mm-hmm. And then the arrival of Sarah Palin on the scene and the, you know, the, um, you know, this, I mean, I suppose it was the, what we, we now call populism, but was really a kind of anti-intellectual or anti, mm-hmm. this kind of crude and somewhat fake anti-elitism, mm-hmm. you know, this language about eggheads or whatever it was, you know, and, 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 um, and people not telling us what to do. You know, I, I, I really rejected that. And I thought mm-hmm. that she was, um, she was, uh, you know, a bad omen for the, for the Republican Party. And it was an odd moment for me because John McCain was somebody who I really admired. Um, and I still admire, actually, mm-hmm. um, even retrospectively. Um, you know, and that's a, that's a longer story. And well, he actually, especially he was a dissident at the end from, from his. He was so, a dissident yeah. at the end. And also, he, I did an event in Washington when my book on the Gulag came out and he spoke at it, for which hmm. I was very grateful. Hmm. This is, you know, this is in 2004 or so, long before he ran for president. But his, his association with her and then the rhetoric around her and then the sort of, um, the, you know, the kind of growing ugliness in the party made me think, right, I've, you know, I can't be... I just don't feel associated with this anymore. So that was, yeah. that was for me, I suppose. For me, the real turning, the, the moment of, you know, when I thought, you know, I just don't want anything to do with these people was Abu Ghraib. Yeah, yes. Anne Applebaum is a staff writer at The Atlantic. Her forthcoming book, The Twilight of Democracy, is out next week, July 21st. Thanks for being here and thanks so much for your book, Anne. Thank you very much. That's it for today's show. What'd you think? Give us your five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and then come to us with your criticism, your comments, your concerns on Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And, and then you're on a roll. You can subscribe to Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and sign up. Plus members get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free for only $35 for the first week. No! the first year. That's a tenth of a cent a day. I finally figured it out. And best of all, you'll be supporting our work, which is invaluable. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Richard Stanislaw. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. <laughs>